0: a gift that worship is. i got to tell you, when I showed up here this morning, I was frazzled. It's been a hard week. Stuff that you know about, I shared with it, some stuff you don't know about. Any of you ever had a week you look back and say, man, I'm glad that's in the rearview mirror? This is one of those. Man, I'm glad it's in the rearview mirror. And so I walked in here this morning feeling, I just don't feel like I got much in the tank. So when I hear you worship like that, it's such a gift I mean, it's a gift, first of all, to the Lord, but it's a gift to your pastor. So thanks for singing well. Thanks for worshiping well. It always tees up the sermon better when when you guys are lifting your hearts well to the Lord. So I'm excited to see what God's going to do in his word today. We have a, a body of elders called the session. It means the seating, and it's uh, it's our governing board. and And we have a woman who really snaps the whip on our elders. She's our clerk of session, and she organizes us and, and ri- drives us, and we all live in wonderful, glorious fear of, of making her unhappy. So uh, uh, Judy Keene, she's, she's just awesome. And uh, Judy just recently uh, made a, um, a trip to Hawaii with her 90-year-old mom, Vivian. And Vivian told Judy, you know, there's one thing I want to do while we're in Hawaii. Any guess what Vivian wanted Let's take a look. <laughs> is that awesome? Vivian, 90-year-old Vivian, was parasailing over the coast of Kona. What is, how cool is that? There, <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Man, I hope that's, if I'm still here at 90, I hope I'm hanging from some kite up in the sky. It sounds like pretty good to me. When I saw that picture, I was thinking, you know, that's a lot like what we've been doing this last five years months together as our, in our journey through the story. We've been kind of sailing high over all of Scripture, where we're able to see the main themes and the main characters and the appearance of Jesus throughout, the, from the beginning to the end. We see the scarlet threads from kind of on high. So it's been a journey like that. And uh, believe it or not, we come today to the end of the Old Testament portion of the story. Uh, It's hard to imagine, but we have wrapped it up. And so next week, you're going to be reading the last section of the Old Testament, and that's the book of Nehemiah. I can't tell you how much I hope that you'll dive into it, because it's one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. I think if you wanted a primer on leadership, you could do no better than Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Save for the Lord Jesus, of course, but it's just an awesome book. And so today, to kind of tee you up for that uh, journey through Nehemiah in this coming week, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up the Old Testament part of the story, and I'm also gonna introduce a a very brief little kind of between Old and New Testament um, sermon series, a Lenten. Uh, th- Three-week series on um, on the on the topic and the quality that I think is one of the most important, and Christ revealing qualities that a disciple can bear, and that is the quality of generosity. Of generosity. Say generosity. We're going to discover in the coming weeks what it means to be a generous disciple and why it matters, okay? So that's what we're about. Would you just pray with me and ask the Lord to open his word to us today? Father, thank you for this great worship. Thank you for a sanctuary full of people. Thank you for the... The, the good turnout today, and people are here eager to worship you and hear your word. And, and so, Lord, will you come through for us? Would you do what none of us can do, and myself included? Would you, by your Spirit, speak your word to our hearts that we might become more faithful, more generous disciples of yours? And all of God's worshiping people said, amen. Cindy and I just had um, some neighbors move in next door, We're not quite next door, a couple doors down. Um, we're very excited about them, they seem great and we've tried to reach out and get to know them a little bit and they tore down an old house and they built a beautiful new home and so property values are going up, how can you hate that, you know, that's awesome. Um, but not very long into the construction process, someone broke into the house, into the job site and stole about a thousand dollars worth of tools. Welcome to the neighborhood. So um, so our neighbors, the following week, did something that makes a lot of sense. Guess what they did? They built a fence right across the front of their property line. A fence with a really strong gate because even though the house project was going well, uh, the, there was a security issue. There, there was a security issue. And that describes exactly the picture that we have when we come to Nehemiah. If you recall that God called 50,000 Jewish exiles to leave where they were in Babylon and come back to Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild a building. What was the building they were rebuilding? The temple. They're going to build the house of God back up. And so it took a while for them to accomplish it, 20 years or so, but finally it was done. The temple was built and the worship of God could resume as it should have been. And uh, and and Jerusalem began to take its its place of, of prominence on the world stage once again, but the people still had an issue, and the issue was that although the the temple was built, the walls around the city were still in ruins, and that was a big deal in those days. So that's the situation: a beautiful temple, but a city with the walls and the gates in ruin, and onto the stage walks. Nehemiah Nehemiah, like Daniel, and like Esther, and like others that we read in the Old Testament story, were exiles in a foreign land who, by their character, by their integrity, had risen to a place of great prominence. In Nehemiah's case, he was the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. Would you say Artaxerxes? That wasn't very good. Pastor Larry and Megan thought of naming their son that, but uh, they went for Reed uh, instead. Artaxerxes was the king, the Persian king, and Nehemiah was his cup bearer, which means he was his wine taster. And he wasn't tasting the wine to say, mm, it's good, it goes with the fish, doesn't go with the fish. He was tasting the wine to make sure that it didn't kill him. It was his job to drink the wine and sit there for 20 minutes, and if he didn't tip over dead, then the king was, it was safe for the king to, to drink. So he was kind of a, the equivalent of a secret agent, So uh, the secret service, uh, he was the, protecting the king. So it was a very trusted position, you understand? And it was in that context that he gets a visit from his brother. His brother's name is Hanani. He makes the journey all the way from Jerusalem to Susa, which was the capital city of Persia, where the king was. And he brings really bad news. So we open the story of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 3, with this news. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So you get the idea, it's kind of like my neighbors, they had the house built, but they didn't have security because the walls had been destroyed. And in those days, especially if you had a city without walls and without a gates, it was like a big sign that was up that said, hey, plunderers, pillagers, all are welcome. Come and steal anything you want, steal it all. That was a, a invitation to just come in and, 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 just, and just take advantage of the city. And so the rest of Nehemiah is the story of how He gets permission from the king to return to Jerusalem and he prayerfully, he's a great man of prayer, you'll love his prayers, he's a great man of prayer and he prayerfully assesses the situation and he pulls together a group of leaders and he motivates them so impressively so that pretty soon his vision is their vision and soon against great opposition, violent opposition as a matter of fact. I mean at one point we read that they're they're building the wall with a sword in one hand and the materials in the other. That's a tough way to build, but that's how dangerous it was. But he leads them through all of that opposition, and soon the walls are rebuilt. And if you you travel with me to Israel someday, and I hope all of you have a chance to do it someday, then I'll take you to a place in the old city, in the Jewish quarter, and I'll point that to you, because that is a portion of Nehemiah's wall from 2,500 years ago, still standing today. It's awesome. That's what Nehemiah was about. It's a great story. I preached an entire series on, on Nehemiah in the past. Some of you remember the series? All two of you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So you could, I mean, you have, you have to, a, a lot to choose from, and so the question is, what, do you, what one thing do you choose to sum up the story of Nehemiah? So here's what I decided to do. I picked the chapter today that preachers hate to preach out of Nehemiah. It's the apparently most boring, meaningless chapter in the whole book, and I love it. I find it fascinating, it, and I want to I help you find it fascinating too, okay? We're going to turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. If you've got your holly biblies, pull them out and turn to Nehemiah chapter 3, and let's read a, a few uh, verses at the, at the start of it. Here we go. Get ready for an exciting ride. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, the son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. Now if that's not scintillating reading, I don't know what is. Right? You're saying, oh, Pastor Mark, don't stop. Read all 32 verses. All 32 unpronounceable named verses. It'd be very easy for you to look at that and say, gosh, what is the point? It's no wonder. The story doesn't even include this chapter in its reading. So you're going to have to pull out your Bibles if you want to read this exciting portion of the story. And it would be easy to say, who cares? Who cares about this long list of tongue-twisting, unpronounceable names? But here's the thing, if you dig in a little deeper, if you do a little detective work, a little, if you look a little carefully, you're going to discover some tidbits that come out that give you a glimpse into the people that God used to, to rebuild his wall. So I want to take us on a journey through that. I hope you got your Bibles open, Nehemiah chapter 3. Take a look at very first, what's the first name that appears in 3 verse 1? Eliashib. Eliashib, what was his role? High priest, we are told that the senior pastor of the community, he set the example. He led by example by getting out there, getting his fingers crushed and bloodied. He was working in the stone right along with the rest of them. I love this picture. You know, there are some pastors who they they lead from up front. They tell you what to do and expect you to go out to do it. I think that I think that Eliashib sets an example for pastors that we all ought to follow, which is the pastors are out among the people. We're getting our hands dirty. We're getting our knuckles bruised and bloodied too because we're right in there with the, with, the, with the flock doing the work. So Eliashib sets a great example, I think, for that. Drop down to verse 8. We're told that one of the sections was being rebuilt by a, name, a guy named Harchiah. Say that one. You're supposed to actually make the H's kind of... H-har-haya. Go ahead. <laughs> That's awesome. Harhaya was the goldsmith. And in the next section over, we are told, was Hananiah, who was a perfume maker. Tell me something. When you think of professions that have burly men who can lift great big rocks to the top of a wall, perfume maker and goldsmith may not come to mind, Right? Maybe they had to put smaller rocks, I don't know, and, and I'll bet theirs was the prettiest section of the whole wall. You know, they're walking by, and say, like, whoa, gold plate all over that, who did that? But here they were doing their part, the goldsmith and the perfume maker. Shalom is another one that's mentioned. Shalom apparently had a family full of girls. He he couldn't have any boys. He's kind of like Andy Davidson of the time. I mean, all he had was girls, women in the house. But that didn't stop them from doing their part. Um, We read this in verse 12. Shalom, the son of Halisheth, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The girl said, Daddy, we can do this. I can hear my daughter, Rachel. We can do this, Dad. And so those girls rolled up their shirt. I mean, it was girl power, you know? And they said, we're going to be a part of this. And so there they were. Verse 14, one of my favorites. We read about Malchijah's family rebuilding the dung gate. The dung gate. The dung gate is just what it sounded like. It was the opening in the wall where they carried all of the sewage and all of the garbage out to be burned in the garbage dump in the valley of Hinnom, south of the city. It was the stinkiest part of the city. And if you were going to pick a place on the wall that you wanted to be working for weeks and months every day, well, the least likely place that you would choose would be the dung gate. I mean, you'd, you'd draw the short straw. But I imagine Malchai just stepping up and saying, you know what, we need a dung gate. Someone's got to take care of the toilets in this place. We need a dung gate. So my family's in. We are in. We'll take care of the dung gate. Aren't you glad that we have people in the church who say, give me the dirtiest job that you got? Because someone's got to do it, and I'm willing to step up. Man, I like that. Mount Kaijah. Awesome. Awesome. And then Baruch. Baruch was the classic overachiever. We find him in verse 20. Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section. He's the only guy that has that adverb added. He's the only one we're t- told worked zealously, which means he was just a, a go-getter. He was the Bart Brinstad of, the, uh, of, the, of the, the wall build, you know. If you've been to Mexico with Bart as one of the build teams, their team's always the one that's got the thing built first, and everyone, you know, kind of waiting for everyone coming in and helping. So, so Baruch was like the Bart Brinstad of the time. See, what I mean is great stuff when you dig in a little bit deeper. So here's my question, though. Why why did uh, the Holy Spirit include this in the Bible? I mean, we believe that Nehemiah 3 is as much Holy Scripture as John 3. So why did the Holy Spirit see fit to preserve this list of unpronounceable names as a part of our sacred text? And I think it's at least this. I think the Spirit wanted to say every person mattered in this story. Every person mattered. There are 41 names, 41 leaders of clans that are mentioned who are there, who put up the money for the materials, who, who, who put up the sweat uh, to help rebuild that, that wall. And whether they were burly or wimpy, skilled or unskilled, male or female, rich or poor, we have this wonderful image that the Spirit has preserved down through these centuries of all of these people, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, doing their part to build the, the wall around Jerusalem. But there, it strikes me that there's another not-so-nice part of this story, too. Do you remember how many exiles came back from Babylon? Babylon? How many? 50,000. 50,000. So, and that was 100 years earlier. So, um, just assuming some growth, population growth, there were probably more than 50,000 Jews who were living in and around Jerusalem. How many stepped up to rebuild the walls? 41. And their clan. 41 and their clan. Which means likely tens of thousands of God's people did not help rebuild the walls. Tens of the thousands of people stood back and, and watched while others did the work, while others paid the freight. Maybe they just watched me. We know some caused opposition. How many observers were there? We don't know, but we, have, we know there are some because they are named. Take a look at verse 5. This is one of the most irksome and inspiring of verses in chapter 3. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The hotshots of the village of Tekoa didn't want to get their hands dirty. Or maybe they didn't want to pony up the money to help pay for their section of the wall. In either case, the leaders, the nobles... Refused to participate in the work that their people, the common people, were engaged in. Doesn't that irk you? They stepped back for whatever reason. And so the Holy Spirit has memorialized forever in Scripture the names of these snobs who stood back and watched while others did their work. And just to kind of drive the point home, later on in verse 27, take a look. Verse 27, we read this. The men of Tekoa repaired another section. What's that about? It's the only one that we read of of guys coming back. They finished their assignment and they went to Nehemiah and said, you got more work for us, we want to do more. I'm not sure what drove it, but part of me wonders, were they embarrassed? Were they ashamed of their leaders who wouldn't step up? And so really to deal with that, they said, hey, our leaders may not work, we'll do more. Give us another assignment, we're on task. And so the men of Tekoa stepped up. Those are some of the stories, some of the images that come out of this. So Nehemiah is really a story about two groups. It's a story of those who stood up. The group that responded to the invitation of God to be a part. Who gave sacrificially. Who worked sacrificially. Who broke fingers and, and, and bloody knuckles in order to do this great work of God. They're the ones that, that stood up. But it's also a story of those who stood back. Who watched at a distance, who chose not to sacrifice, who who gladly let others do their work, and pay the freight, and in some cases we see them even causing trouble, making fun of, and, and bringing opposition to the ones who were doing the work of the kingdom. One of my jobs, I take it as the core of my work, is to ask the Lord, what do you, what do you want me to speak about in this text? All of the pastors, we do that. We pray about it. We lay the text before the Lord. What do you want your people to hear? And as I prayed about Nehemiah and this little section between the Old Testament and the New Testament, I asked the Lord, what do you want me to bring to your people? And I sensed the Lord saying this. I want you to use the story of Nehemiah to teach my people what it means to be generous disciples to teach my people what it means to participate in the work of my kingdom, to give of themselves, give of their resources. I want you to use Nehemiah to teach my people generosity. And could I tell you, I didn't like that message very much. In fact, in a way that I seldom do, I dreaded preaching this sermon. I like preaching. I, I like getting up and bringing God's word, but I found myself dreading this message, and I I couldn't figure out what was going on there. There was a a time in the early years of my ministry, the first 20 years of my ministry, where I didn't have trouble at all talking about stewardship, about giving, about money. Every November, some of you will recall, every November we would have a a stewardship campaign where we would speak about the the issues of money and giving and and everyone would fill out pledge cards about what work they were going to do here at Chapel Hill, how they were going to participate. Frankly, I was pretty gutsy about it in the first 20 years. So what happened? What happens is I got tired of taking hits. And over the years, the, the the criticism began to wear me down. I would hear this more and more often. All the church ever does is talk about money. And it wasn't true, but after a while, it began to sting. It, it's interesting to me that the people who said this are never tithers. They're always the people that don't give anything, and and but they would complain and 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 raise this issue up and again and again, and I just got tired of it, and I, I frankly I lost I, I think I lost my courage, which is unfortunate because money is a big issue of of discipleship, and the reason I know that is because of all the topics that Jesus preached on. In his ministry, do you know what topic he spoke on more than any other except for the kingdom of God? Money, giving, stewardship. 11 of the 39 parables that Jesus told had to do with money. So this was a focus of the Lord and it makes you wonder, what did he know? Well, he knew about his people what is true about us people today. And that is that money easily becomes our God. I mean, what is a God? It's what you worship. It's what you cling to. It's what you count on. It's what you trust. It's what you, you know, preserve. You protect. And m- many people, they treat their wealth, they treat their possessions as if that was their God. So our possessions, how we spend, how we give, how we hoard, how we fear how we ang- uh, have anxiety about our retirement, all of those things indicate that money is often the last part of our life that we surrender. And young people, you might as well hear this now. You think this probably goes with the people who, who have jobs and, and you're not there. I guarantee you, if you want to learn how to give well, give now when you've got nothing because it becomes easier. If you wait until you have a lot of money, it, it becomes harder and harder to learn to give. So this is for you too. I learned to give when I was your age. The, the, often, the last thing to be surrendered to Christ is, is our money. We hold on to it. And in many cases, I've seen it does not happen. People who, in every other way, they reflect Christ, they, are, they appear to be faithful disciples of Jesus, and yet in this area, they, they hold on. Martin Luther recognized this 500 years ago. Luther once said there are three conversions the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind and the conversion of the purse. And he said the last one is the hardest one and sometimes never happens. So I want to confess to you as my fellow pilgrims here at Chapel Hill, I'm not sure I have been very faithful to the Lord in this respect over the last few years. Talking about a a topic that the Lord obviously considered important or he wouldn't have talked about it so much himself. And I'm sorry for that. But as I was preparing for Lent, which is our season of giving up stuff, you know, but we give up stuff like chocolate or carbohydrates or maybe the cell phone, it struck me, maybe the Lord wants us to talk about a season of sacrifice that really matters, that really means something. And it seemed that the Holy Spirit was prompting me to speak to this issue. And not as a matter of fundraising. Will you hear that, please? As a matter of disciple-making. This isn't about raising more money. It's about raising up disciples. In fact, we, we couldn't be speaking at a better time than right now because our walls are not broken. It happens that we are in a season when you have responded very generously. And so uh, things are really very good right now. Our income exceeds our budget, and the budget, frankly, was aggressive because the elders want to pay down more debt. And so we're at a season right now where your generosity suggests, of, of many of you, that we are in fact maturing as disciples of Jesus, which is awesome. And I wonder too if it doesn't suggest that you, as a church, are excited about what God is doing. I mean, look at this morning. Uh, our attendance has been up this year. Our giving is up. But there are other things that, are, that matter more. I think you are excited about our Our young families, the way that that's growing and and burgeoning, you're excited, I think, about our Saturday night service. Even if you don't worship there, you know that it's going on and meeting a great need. You're excited about that? I'll bet you'll be very excited to hear this piece of news. The session at their last meeting voted to extend to Ellis an invitation when he finishes seminary next fall, an invitation to become our next assistant pastor in our church. So as a matter of fact, there's a sense of momentum, and many of you are part of that 41 who who are in there, you are serving, you are giving, you're sacrificing to be a part of your part, do your part of of building the wall, shoulder to shoulder, great and small. In other words, and I, I really hope I don't screw things up by saying this, I mean, I don't want you to suddenly take your foot off the pedal, but your church doesn't need more money right now. There are times when we might and times when we will, but this isn't one of those times where we're not making an appeal because we are financially strapped. And God certainly doesn't need your money. So where is the issue of need? You need to give. That's the basic biblical point of stewardship. You need to give. You were created by a generous God to be a generous person. When you live into that, you're living into the the nature that God has placed within you. And I'm convinced that giving makes you a better person. Giving makes you a better disciple when you learn how to give generously. And if you don't know how to give, you choose not to give, then you often become a puckered, stingy, grasping person. And you are not very fun. Thinking back to our text, giving is the way also that we participate in God's work. We don't build walls. I mean, we did an extreme remake over once, but mostly we're not doing the building around here per se. But we participate in God's work by giving money to allow that work and that mission to go forward. So think about that story again. 50,000 Jews came back, and we know of 41 clans who were doing the sacrificial work of God. And I think their names are memorialized in the scripture because the Holy Spirit wanted to honor those who were willing to do their part, large or small, to accomplish God's purposes while so many of their friends stood back and let them carry the load. Obviously, those who were working, would have, it would have been helpful to the ones who were working if the, if the others had pitched in, right? But the truth of it is, it was the ones who were stepping back who were really losing out on the deal. They were losing out on the blessing of being a part of what God's doing. It would be like a kid who goes to Mexico and stands to the side for the entire week while others are building the house. What do you think will be the difference in their experience of Mexico between the one who are laboring away, getting tar all over themselves, poking themselves with staples, and the one who's standing back just watching it take place? Whose lives will be changed? Whose hearts will be grown As a result of that. So I think that the question for us today, at least as it seems the Spirit is speaking, is are you participating in the building of God's kingdom? Are you a part of that? Or are you standing back and letting others do your work and pay your way? I want to be clear about this. For those of you who are visiting, this is family business the last thing I want you to do is go home and say, all they ever do is talk about money. If you're a visitor, if you're a guest, we don't expect a dime from you. You're our guest. But when you come up here, when you stand up and say, you know what, I want to be a part of this, I'm going to be a member of this congregation. When you come up here, well, it's, it's always puzzling for me and frankly disheartening to me when my finance com- team reports back to me that there are hundreds of people who are members, active members of the church, who give little or nothing to the work of God here at Chapel Hill. I don't understand it. If these folks went to a restaurant, had a nice $100 meal for a couple of them, and they wouldn't walk out expecting the guy next door to pay the bill. I mean, they would not only pay the tab, they'd probably tip the waiter 15 or 20%. That's what you would expect. And yet we have people who are members of our church who come and they feed upon the Lord here and expect others to cover their tab. I don't get it. And I think you're the poorer for it. You lose out because you're not invested. So this is a matter of discipleship. I think it's a heart issue and only... Jesus can fix that heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And, and so part of this process is for us to, to align our hearts, to have our hearts healed. And if there's a defect there, to ask the Lord to fix it. Billy Graham, the quote that's in your bulletin, bears repeating. He said, give me five minutes with a person's checkbook, and I'll tell you where their heart is. What would five minutes with your checkbook say about where your heart is? Where your discipleship is? Where your commitment is to the work that God is building here? So over the next three weeks, I want to ask you to just ponder this. Prayerfully consider what God is asking you to do. Are you... Are you happy where you are? Do you think the Lord is calling you to some other place? And if you're not, then ask the Lord to repair your heart. Because here's what I'm convinced of. God is at work. He's building his kingdom. He's going to do it with or without you. But you're going to lose out if you're not a part of that. And so right there between the goldsmith and the perfume maker is a section of the wall that has your name on it. Wouldn't you like to be remembered 2,500 years from now when the story of Chapel Hill, the kingdom of God in Gig Harbor is told that your name is in the roll call. I I want that. I hope you want that too. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the spirit and the tone of this message was right, not condemnatory, not guilt-producing, but just true and honest. I pray that you protect the hearts that would receive this in the wrong way, that they might be persuaded to hear your voice and to do what you're calling them to do. I pray for a church full of people who are large and small, great and small, are all shoulder to shoulder doing their work and no one's standing back spectating. That's what I ask you to do, Lord, and I pray your Holy Spirit would accomplish that. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Chapel Hill, brothers and sisters, my name is Tim Payne, And over the next several weeks, as we go through this series on The Generous Disciple, I'm going to be your cruise director as we talk about some homework that we're going to do as a congregation, you're going to do as individuals, and hopefully with your spouses, and uh, in addition, with your life groups. Many of you know me. Some of you want to deny me. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, though, let me just share a little bit. Uh, my lovely wife Stephanie and I have uh, have been a part of this church for a number of years. We have two boys, Will, who is twelve, Joey, who is sixteen, and we are a family who loves the Lord and who are firm believers in Jesus Christ. And we're also certified Chapel Hillbillies. We first attended Chapel Hill in two thousand two Memorial Weekend. That was the weekend we moved to Gig Harbor. First church we visited. We knew immediately that we were home, and we knew immediately that you were our family. And we progressed 14 years later. We still love this church. We still love you, and we love the mission of this church, to present everyone mature in Christ. And so that's exactly what we're going to be doing in this series, is talking about maturity, maturity in our generosity. So I hope you're going to come along for the journey Our basic homework assignment for this week is two things, to process and to pray. Can you say that with me? Process and pray. I really didn't need to do that, but I just love it when Mark does that. I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I did that? (laughs) So we have a resource, uh, a helpful tool that is inserted into your bulletin, and I'd like you to pull that out right now. And probably the best way to recognize it, it has this very colorful graphic on it. So if you could pull that out and raise it so I know I've got everybody with me. Very good. Upstairs, perfect. couple late voters. Great. Okay, great. You'll see this up on the screen, and I'm going to talk about the generosity ladder in just one moment. You'll see on the other side it says week one reflection, process and prayer. You've seen those terms before. You even said them a moment ago. So we're going, to, we're going to ask you to think about, is God doing kingdom-building work at Chapel Hill? And the second question to ask yourself is, am I giving to that kingdom-building work? And then finally, as a part of the processing, we want you to look at this little scale on the back, the graphic, the generosity ladder, and we want you to really look at that and Take a look and be honest about where you are at. And be thinking and praying and asking God to tell you where you should be. And just to be honest and open with you, now you would think that if they were going to pick somebody to speak to you, I would be one of those in the Kingdom View circle. Um, However, I'm not. Stephanie and I, in our marriage, We have been 10-percenters, tithers. But guess what? We realized a couple years ago that somehow, through the noise of life, we were not. We were down, really, to be honest with you, in safe. We were in the safe circle. And about a year and a half ago, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more next week, we moved up into the percentage circle. We are regular givers, and I will be... Very frank with you, we do not give 10%. Because life happens, things happen, noise gets in the way. But our desire, our heart, is to move up and to mature. And in fact, our short term goal for Stephanie and myself is really to move back into where we were some years ago sacrificial giving. You see, we don't care where you're at on this circle. You may be down in the bottom. What matters is where you're going. And so we ask all of you to process and pray about your generosity and the maturity of your generosity. We know some of you are already very high on the scale. And God bless you. But in this church, we want everybody to mature. And we love you all. So we want you to process and pray in three ways. Process and pray by yourself in the quietness of your quiet time. And if you don't have quiet time, do it on your commute time. Find some time. I struggle with quiet time, but I'm going to find time. Process and pray with your spouse. If you have one or if you are soon to have a spouse, process and pray with that person. Be thinking about what you want to do as a family. And finally, for those of you who are in life groups, process and pray with your life group. Take time out of your life group. My life group is going to do that. I just... Announce that to them uh, in, in this moment. We're going to do that this week. This is your tool for yourself and for your spouse. For life groups, there is a life group guide out at the Connect Center. And a life group leaders, go get the guide. Right, okay. And if you don't have a leader, make sure somebody gets it. They're, they'll be the designated leader. So there's a guide out there for the life groups. Take this and keep it, own it, and really use it. You know, the thing about inserts in, in, in bulletins, Satan has a way of making them disappear. All right, Satan has built in features into our minivans and our SUVs called cubby holes and compartments. Do not allow this to go in there. Do not allow this to be buried by the mail when you go home. Own this. Pray about this. Process this. I'm going to be doing that, and that's my challenge to you. Mark told you that there's a space on the wall. Some of you are already on the wall helping to build. Stephanie and I, when the story of kingdom building in Gig Harbor is told, we want it to be known that our clan, the Payne clan, was on that wall. And we know that many of you will be on that wall as well. But my prayer, my prayer in these next couple of weeks is that Everyone who hears my voice here or on the podcast takes a step forward and joins us on the wall. So within the story of Jesus Christ in Gig Harbor is told, all of our names, which are far easier to pronounce, will be on that wall and will be a part of that story. Mark?
0: Thank you, brother. That was great. Thanks for your transparency, too.